My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Brooke Lavelle. Brooke is the co-founder and president of the Courage of Care Coalition, a nonprofit that helps people from across cultures, backgrounds, and identities work together at the intersection of compassionate inquiry, self-discovery, and mindfulness and spirituality. Brooke is a self-identified member of Team Courage, of which we explore and which I was very excited to discover that there was a team, uh, and I've immediately joined up. Our conversation today dives into these questions of what it is for us to be together, not in spite of our differences or not in tolerance of our differences, but rather as a direct extension of an integration of our differences in a way that allows each of us to be who we uniquely are because of where we came from and the experiences we had and the identities we've taken on while also being in community in true community with other people who have their own story and their own journey and their own identities. Brooke's background is, is, is really the background of what I see as an applied philosopher, as someone who has gone deeply into some of the most important questions of our species and of our existence and done so in a way that navigates that and brings it to life for others who may not have done that depth of inquiry, but who nonetheless feel the longing to belong and feel a sense that there is a world brighter and more beautiful and more inclusive and more sustainable than the world that we find ourselves in today. So this conversation weaves in and out of these spaces where change happens, transformation happens, beloved community happens. And I hope you'll get a taste of the connection that Brooke is capable of creating and the ways in which all of the people that she surrounds herself with are doing the same. So let's get settled in. And hear what Brooke has for us. Hi, Brooke. Hi, Andy. Welcome. Thank you. I said before we started, you're, you have Team Courage as your name in Zoom, which I love. I'm like, oh, I want to be part of Team Courage. <laughs> and maybe we could start there. When did you know that you were on Team Courage or that you were inviting people to Team Courage? Oh, that's beautiful. 
team courage is my home. So team courage is the way we refer to um, our team and our family at Courage of Care, which mm. is a nonprofit I started about five years ago. And it's a group of folks from different generations, different disciplines, different faith traditions, different racial identities, um, different gender identities, who've all come together for this sometimes challenging project of building beloved community. Mm -hmm. And it's a mix of a practice community, a family, an organization, and navigating the tensions of all of that. And we started because many of us uh, were deeply involved in the, you might say, modern American contemplative movement, mm -hmm. whether it was teaching mindfulness or compassion and education, healthcare, and really struggling and bumping up against the limitations of understandings of justice and equity in a lot of those movements, and longing for a place where we could both do and expand our justice work, but also keep like a really deep taproot into our spiritual traditions and not compromise either of mm -hmm. those. So that's the project of Team Courage. We call it our work kind of spiritual activism. Like how do we source our spiritual tradition for the world? And that's not a new idea, but really how do we use those traditions to really show up and advance the cause of basically collective liberation? Mm. Mm. So beautiful. Hmm. Yeah, I'm just taking that in. I'm struck by the um, the sense that there's a way for us to show up to these really challenging and important questions of collective liberation without sacrificing ourselves at, at that altar. In other words, like sort of staying really rooted in our faith and our sense of identity. And I wonder if you could just say more about that. I mean, that's my language, sort of the sacrificial language, but, but I wonder there's something there for me about like, this is really important what we're doing out in the world. And it's so important that actually we need to anchor really deeply. Otherwise, I don't know. Otherwise, question mark. So maybe you could say more oh. about that anchoring. What's so important about that? Something about being sourced in a spiritual tradition. So maybe that's sensing that you're part of a long lineage or... Mm you're not alone in the work or, and I'm, I'm speaking, you know, as a white cisgendered able-bodied woman, like raised in a particular American cultural context, there's something that I've internalized so deeply about um, like a heightened sense of individualism. I'm still learning how to reclaim my sense of connection to land and to nature. I mentioned to you, I grew up in outside of New York. And so like, you know, I grew up knowing names of three trees. One of them is Christmas, you know, like such a disconnection <laughs> from that. Um, so for me, spirituality has been about tapping that, that network, that what we call and encourage this kind of field of care, like sensing mm -hmm. really our sense of deep relationality and time and space and lineage. Mm. And there's something about tapping for me, tapping that vastness that reminds me when we show up, whether it's for political action or whether it's to advance a cause of justice or equity, that we're, we're doing so for the sake of something more than just like winning some battle or fighting against something in particular, that it's like 
in a way, a call into that kind of deepest nature, like a, a call to realize maybe our fullest potential or our humanity in that way. And there's something about that sourcing, I feel like, when I'm tapped in that, which is not always the case, right? But when I feel connected to that, that it's like I'm I'm working on behalf of something, not just against something. And there's something so much more um, spacious and generative about that stance than just being mm. pissed off about. I mean, there are lots of things I'm pissed off about, but that that's a smaller me that's showing up to the work rather than this this vaster sense of like what we're for, you know? Wow. Yeah. I'm I'm really drawn to what you're describing as sourcing mm. and the way you're describing it as uh, something that sort of stretches across space and time and something that in some way you connect to lineage. And I wonder if you could unpack that more and maybe really just specifically for you, what is it, what does it mean to source yourself in that? How do you source yourself in that? Mm-hmm. Could you say more about that? Yeah. So I came up or I kind of came of age in the early days of the mindfulness movement I mentioned and some of my early learning or the way that I was experiencing some of that learning was that I was kind of learning how to become a more spiritual person or more mindful person. And it was in and through encountering um, primarily the devotional aspects of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And I, I see this pattern in other traditions, but for me, some of my first and most important teachers from that tradition helped me understand that I wasn't trying to remake myself into a better person. I was learning to kind of catch on in a way to capacities of love and wisdom and courage that were, you could call it basic nature, but I have this sense of like this field of energy. Like I'm, I'm actually learning to be tutored by that. Mm-hmm. Like I'm almost trying to learn how to get out of my own way of controlling and managing and making and almost trying to catch on to that rhythm. And I, you know, for me, I learned how to catch on to that, or I should say, I'm still very much learning how to catch on to that in, you know, learning and listening and watching even the embodiment of some of my own teachers or watching the embodiment of like fierce justice leaders, like how folks show up in the world or like beloved parents or like a good coach, right? Like the the ways in which folks show up, that's like holding more space or evoking or empowering those qualities of being that are within us, like a kind of resonance in a way. And it's that kind of sourcing that I feel, you know, in the tradition, you might call that empowerment. Um, But I find that, you know, in nature, I find that when I'm with my little nephew, Milo, right? Like there's a way that just a different way of being is evoked when I can soften um, sometimes a more rigid or like closed shell of being that I kind of walk around the world with, right? Like protecting this. Mm self right how do I just soften and catch on in that way it's beautiful and you have this team all of whom in some way shape or form identify with a lineage or a source themselves is that right yeah and different sources you know some of us buddhists um some of us into and steeped in indigenous traditions african traditions devotional Christian traditions. Uh, One of my most beloved rabbis is on our team, right? Like this is, it's also meant to say like that this, 
kind of uh, way of being exists and rests in many of our traditions, traditional or not, right? Like that this is a way that most of us have probably already been introduced to, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So one thing that's, that's emerging that that's really for me in this moment, that's really lovely is just, just already by sh- the sheer existence of this nonprofit you founded and the people who are sitting around the table, there is a, um, maybe I might call it a counter narrative to the narrative of, of sort of boundaries and divisiveness to the sort of clashing of traditions that, whether it be those religious or political or you name it, playing out in all sorts of public ways. And so you're here saying, yeah, we have Buddhists and devotional Christians and, and uh, rabbis and just African traditions. You have all, and we're sitting around a table, we're all sourcing from these traditions and then aligning towards something. And maybe, could you just talk about, just play, play with that more. Like what a beautiful and yeah, maybe pretty unique, or at least maybe not publicly well-known way of bringing together all of these different sort of rivers. Yeah. And there's so many layers to this, like this project we're trying to build. So one layer or one clear goal is to try to move away from a kind of default way of doing this work as a teacher on high and a bunch of students gathered at their feet, which mm. don't get me wrong. I just spoke of the devotional tradition and the importance of, of teacher and lineage. And, and I respect that and, and see many beautiful things about traditions like that. Um, but this is a way of moving out of maybe some of those or offering a counter opportunity to some of those traditions and saying, we all have a capacity to teach and we all have wisdom that we can offer. So how do we create like a sandbox or playground for us to really to do that and make that teaching come alive and to move out of a kind of another standard and maybe kind of traditional nonprofit model of like a leader who is the one endowed with wisdom and leading the charge for a group of people and say, we're actually trying this project of co-leading and co-holding this work. And this was really modeled to me in the work of folks who lead undoing racism, this like 30 plus year old, really amazing institution of anti-racist work. And in their trainings, you know, you show up, you sit in circle and anywhere between five and seven facilitators are co-holding the space with you. And what's communicated in that embodiment, folks who are um, white bodied BIPOC folks, is that there are different ways of, of, of literally embodying inhabiting this work and healing journeys and life stories to tell and wisdom to share and ways of showing up that are fierce, that are soft, that are loving, that are confronting, right? And there was something in that that awakened me to say like, this is the kind of community learning that I didn't really grow up with, right? Yeah. In my own education that I yearn for, like I yearn for like, it's like the village lifestyle. Like I yearn to just be at the tea house or the bar or the park, right? Like we're all together learning and fumbling in life together. And that's, that's what we're still trying to replicate with encourage is this space of like, we have facilitators always in a room, but also always trying to replicate that anyone that enters that circle also always has something to share that we're literally co-holding that field Mm. together. And so that's, 
meant to be to shepherd in a relational leadership model. It's also meant to shepherd us into like the experience of communal holding of, of it. Like it's not, yeah, we have our own agency for healing, but this work is actually collective. Like our healing and how we get free is communal, right? Mm. How do we mm. practice that? Mm. Oh man, it's bringing up a lot for me right now. I love your image of sort of like the tea house, the park, the bar. And I'm going to try and get my, my, my arms around this question. Yeah, there's, again, there's something really, uh, the, the word counter keeps coming up. Although, although that's like, that can often feel like really strong and sharp. Like I counter what you're saying, but there's like a, a sort of fluid, response to the absence that we've created in our collective lives, the absence of real community connection, the absence of deep listening and care for each other, the sort of estrangement from each other that we have, even, even someone who you might literally live six feet away from, you know, and I'm aware, like as someone who's lived six feet away from someone else with only a wall between us, I'm aware of the kind of irony that we're all supposed to stay six feet apart right now. Right. And it's like, it's a stranger. We're estranged from each other. And, and, and then you come along and say like, walk through this door over here, yeah. you and you come in here yes. yeah. and that, and like how almost radical that is in the face. Uh, of course you're, it's ancient, but it's also really radical in the face of, uh, of how much of what we learn or, or don't learn about what it is to be in community. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I'm touched by that. And I wonder I wonder what it's like for you to stand with your team and your community at this place or to take this stance and sort of, how are you relating to kind of the, the, the sort of mainstream cultural narrative that we are all separate, that we are consumers, that we are, you know, that uh, this is all woo woo and fluffy and a waste of time, like whatever the sort of, we could think of 10,000 criticisms for why that's, why would I go through that door? I got stuff to do, Brooke. I got stuff to do. Like, just how are you in relationship with that? Yeah, I'd say this is core for us. So at some level, you know, our work is about doing or offering training to help us undo racism, to undo the toxic effects of capitalism, to address the climate crisis. And what we would point to, like our analysis on the deepest level, is that all of these crises share a common root, which is the crisis of separation or the crisis of dualism, if you're using a a certain kind of spiritual frame. And I say that with a little bit of caution because what I don't want the kind of tweet or headline to be is like, love will solve all of our issues, right? Like we're not just saying, oh, if you feel relationality, like systems of oppression will come tumbling down. Like it's not that simple. Um, But the essence or like the direction that we're working in is anything that we can do to help us reclaim or restore our sense of relationality, the sense that we're not separate, that we're not isolated individuals, that competition is not getting us anywhere. Anything we can do to work on that is actually what's helping us move toward liberation. 
And so that might look like um, intra-personal practices of reclaiming that relationality. It might look like learning how to be in community and actually practicing being in relationship. I think what I'm maybe finding myself, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, it's And it's about kind of building a culture of that. Yeah. And we could talk more about that, that that's kind of like the direction of practice for us is like, what does a culture of relational practice look like or a community of relational practice look like? Yeah. Yeah. I want I definitely want to talk more about that. And what I'm noticing myself really curious about is really like at the level of, of, of Brooke Lavelle, like as Brooke or however you, you talked about kind of the like expansive and then the kind of armored, but, but, and in whatever way you sort of hold this identity or however fluidly you hold your identity as like person Brooke, what is it like to be a co-leader? What's hard about being a co-leader in this space and what's, what's opening up for you? What's surprising for you about it? Because you really, I really sense, and maybe I, I don't want to impose my own impressions here, but there's sort of a way in which this little counterculture bubble that you're creating is, is on all sides receiving pressure from, from sort of consensus culture to be like, that's weird. That's strange. That's a waste of time. You're making, you're causing too much trouble. You're like all, whatever the sort of, there's all this pressure around the bubble and so I sense like, how do you, you know, how do you, how are you Brooks standing inside of that bubble in relationship to all that pressure? There's a pressure, I think, in a capitalist system to give over to those tendencies toward urgency, toward Mm. profit, Mm. not because one wants to become rich or better, because we all know that that's not happening within this model, (laughs) but because capitalism, I think, rests on a narrative of scarcity. Like I think you were pointing to that there's not enough. And if we don't work hard or don't work faster, like we're not going to make it, we might not survive. And there's some truth to that. Like there literally are, are real world implications to this system. And, and part of the resistance or the ongoing practice for us is not only to resist that narrative, but to really try on an alternative model of abundance and really trust, like, to trust in relationship, to trust in the, sometimes the slowness of the process of doing community work and consensus work. Like it's a lot easier for an individual to come in and just make a decision and move things along and a lot harder, harder in air quotes to slow down and tend to the process and tend to the building relationships that are necessary. And I'll speak for myself. Like there's a lot of unlearning that I have to do you know, as much as this is a dream of mine, I've also been shaped by these systems. And I feel a responsibility for this particular project. I'm also shaped by having grown up in New York and um, working class poor, like these, this like is in my blood, like the idea of slowing down, and even being on a retreat is just like, get out of here. And I've been on many retreats, right. But it's like, I it's, 
it's a current in me that I have to practice into. And there's something also like what keeps me going is I also know and have felt in my body that when we slow down and when we trust the Mm. process and like trust the capacity of other people in that circle, that things emerge from that space that never in a million years would have emerged from this mind or body. And there's something so wildly beautiful and exciting about that for me that that's what I keep showing up for. Wow. Yes. Yeah. There's something about the, um, you have, you have a felt sense, you have experience of the alternative that many of us have never had before. Uh, And that felt sense that past experience is enough that even when the urgent voice or the sort of, inherited burden of urgency kind of comes back in and says, no, Brooke, come on, make the decision. You're the leader here or whatever it is. You can say like, no, I trust. Let's pay, let's wait. Let's take the time we need to take. And then there's like some sort of emergent wisdom Mm -hmm. that just isn't there in the kind of leadership decisive leader that you, that's everyone's saying you're supposed to be. Is that Mm -hmm. right? Totally. Totally. And there's a, you know, we have a lot of elders in our community and folks who, you know, a lot of us white-bodied folks in our community were raised without, you might say, this kind of culture, communal culture, sense of trust, right? That the kind of individualism we've been shaped by might feel a little stronger. I think most of us, if not all of us, raised or shaped in this American or even Euro-American culture will have remnants of that. But a lot of our elders of color or elders that have grown up in other communities or cultures, there's a sense and there's something communicated through in and through their embodiment that even just literally being in space with them is like a tuning into another radio frequency. It's like, I I like hear this voice, like baby girl, like you can just relax. (laughs) And there's like a, there's a resting into that. And Mm. that's also what I think of the power of community. Like if I were alone, come trying to come up with this theory of community, which by the way, it's not mine to come up with. It would be so hard to practice that. So it's, (sighs) it's, it's the community itself that allows that kind of release that shift, right? That sense that something else is possible. And and within that, there are those moments of expansion and rest and contraction, you know, like there are periods where we're like flowing and process and periods where it's like, we're all back in these shells again, right? And so it's this constant, like, yeah, I just think of it like that basic rhythm of like expansion, contraction, just trying to get more free, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just even the the idea of rhythm is so evocative because it's everywhere in nature, right? Like our bodies are Mm -hmm. always in rhythm. Our heart is always expanding Mm -hmm. and contracting. Our lungs are expanding Mm -hmm. and contracting. Our capillaries, all of it is sort of... And and in a way, what I'm noticing is as you share that, it's sort of like we rarely have... And I'm saying we and us as if I don't want to sort of put in a tent over everyone, but many of us who identify, particularly those of us in white bodies, but more generally who are raised in, in these American cultures, these cultures of capitalism, these cultures of urgency, and, and there's sort of a, a, 
a real strong pressure n- never to expand. It's just like, just keep contracting, keep flexing the muscle, keep like applying more force and pressure faster, harder, quicker, and eventually we'll crack through. And that's just like exhausting. It's exhausting. <laughs> Mm-hmm. so there's something about uh, there's also just in the way you're showing up on our call today and the way you're talking about these spaces that feels in and of themselves regardless of what you're orienting towards whatever question you're orienting towards the spaces themselves have a quality of like release and nourishment and healing mm-hmm. and uh you've used the word healing a few times i wonder I wonder if you could just say more about that. Like where, where does healing fit into this, this question of interpersonal practices and community building and the work that you're doing? Yeah. And that analysis you just pointed to like this sense that, or the pressure to kind of just keep going, keep producing, keep moving at a speed in terms of our own bodies and our planet that is not sustainable is, is exhausting And I also think it's kind of by design, like the more of us that just are willing to kind of grin and bear it, so to speak, or like dig in and and keep going, the less of us that are starting to wake up or, or let the impact of the pain of these systems and the unsustainability of the systems be felt, right? Like these systems of oppression require that we consent to keep them going Mm -hmm. Like, I think if and as, because I'm hopeful here, more of us actually start to feel the impacts of this and give over. For me, I can speak to the, like, really deep grief of not just, like, the loss of planet, but the loss of relationship and the loss of, like, realizing potential. Like, the more we could give over to that, I think the more these systems would actually begin to start to crack and crumble. Mm-hmm. And that I, that is, like, for us, a key stage in this healing process is, like, you know, we think of our work kind of like a, we have this model we call Courage Rise. It should really be the Courage Rise and Fall for that expansion and contraction rhythm you talked about, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's you know, helping us ground community enough of a sense of safety and belonging so that we can really begin to do what we call revealing truths, like Mm -hmm. dig into this analysis. Like how are we shaped by these systems of oppression? How are we perpetuating and producing them? And what's the repair that actually has to happen at that level for ourselves and our communities. And that's the first part of healing for us is like to really start to do a kind of accounting and a kind of reckoning of the healing that's required of us and and of our communities. But then there's another kind of healing. Like I I feel like our journey can't just get stuck there. Like what we need to fix. It's like, how do we really let go and like really let go of some of this shaping that's had a hold over us um, like for generations really. Mm -hmm. So I think of healing at a really deep level is like that profound capacity for rest. And like in, in some of our spiritual traditions, we'd call this like a kind of non-dual resting, like really dropping all kinds of sense of separation. And it's from that kind of point of healing that we feel like we can open and start to sense and like begin to feel into alternative possibilities. Mm. And that's a, 
ongoing process of healing. Like I think there's both a stage of healing in the work just to name it, to call us to slow down for healing. But I think all of the work is a process of healing. Like I don't think there's an end point for this. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, This is really lovely. Thank you for sharing that. So then I'm, I'm now finding myself kind of pulled to, I mean, I know that the best way for anyone listening, myself included, about like, well, what does it look like and feel like and sound like would be to just go to one of your circles, but, but maybe as best as you're able, you can take us in. What does it mean to practice belonging? What does it mean to practice connection? Yes, yes. So our community is growing and one, give you a sneak peek, one of our favorite, or I'd say my favorite um, programs that we do every year is called our summer retreat. And this year, because of COVID, we moved the retreat online, but normally we would do the retreat um, in my house. Uh, (laughs) Very grassroots. And when I say that, I don't have a big house. It's just, that's how courage comes together. Um, you know, the whole team sleeping on the floor. I used to sleep in the closet. Like just, it's this sense of community. We make all of our meals together. The team takes turns cooking. So it's the sense of kind of like a living experiment for a week. And that might sound terrifying to some people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But we wake up and we go through this courage rise model, which um, every day, like, what does it look like to show up and learn how to love more deeply? So in these five days of our summer retreat, we bring folks together to go through this courage rise model. And it looks like moving through contemplative and somatic practices and dyad work and community circles. So like every day we're practicing kind of in vivo, also trying to build a community that is Mm. compassionate and truth telling and visionary in its own way. And that as a kind of experience is a touch point for us. And while we welcome folks to come and and play with us in like any of our workshops, our day longs, our, our week longs, the Courage community now is several hundred people strong of folks who have been doing these trainings year in and year out. We have these year-long programs for healers and leaders that are designed, yes, to help us all on our own healing journey, but to help us build a community of practice that we can kind of deepen in or grow up in, right? Like, for me, as a, someone who's attended a ton of trainings and workshops in my life, I can, I know I'm like a professional attendee, you know, I know how to go. I know how to get the agenda. I know how to learn a few practices. I know how to be vulnerable and not be vulnerable if I don't want to. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I know when to duck out for the partner group work if I don't want to do it. <laughs> but if I'm never going to see these folks again, there's only a certain degree of, on some level of transformation that might be possible, right? So for us, the long-term investment in a community is like also a long-term commitment to being in relationship where some of that learning and some of that mirroring actually can be possible, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what like just one really simple, but but I imagine pretty powerful example of that is like in a community like that, if Brooke always ducks out when it's time for the partner up at some point, someone really loving someone like is going to say in a really loving, but a, a kind of 
you know, high expectation ways and be like, so what's, what's going on there? Like, what's up? Where have you been? Where were you? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that like the, the places where we try to, I almost said it, I almost said the word escape and maybe that's the right word, but you know, there's just sort of like the, in my own journey, I found that the places where I'm most resistant or I'm most afraid or I'm most triggered are actually the places that need the most attention and love and care and are also the hardest places to to get to because those parts of me are really cautious and really, and also really skillful. They're really good at avoiding that attention. Yeah, totally. Totally. So I sense that like part of what you're talking about is like inviting people into spaces where even the parts of them that they don't love or, or the parts of other people that they don't think they love, like all of that has to be welcome too. that. It's not just about like showing up as this super nice, happy, friendly person, but it's actually really as best as you're able of just showing up. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I'd say it's about a practice of just getting more real. Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to kind of over sensationalize vulnerability. Right. It's not like, I think it's the, from Parker Palmer, it's not share or die. Right. It's not that every single part of you needs to be on display. Yes. Um, But it's like, how can you show up and and get more real? Right. How can we get more real together? And, And what does it feel like to be in space? where folks are actually trying to show up in that way. You alluded to a lot of elements of the practice that for people who haven't done this kind of work, kind of go, so maybe we could just play there. You know, uh, you talked about dyad work. You talked about, um, you know, you talked about meal making. Uh, You talked about community circles. for the for those who have done these kind of practices, I'm like, okay, get it, I get it. But actually, right. all of that stuff is very right. Even just the idea of sitting in circle, walk into any walk into any sort of um, place of business, and and in most cases, there are desks and and windows and walls and cubicles and like there's all of these ways in which we are what you call the kind of separation we are like physically enacting that in spaces where we spend a lot of time together, you know, and, and of course that's being intensely enacted in certain ways right now. Um, but maybe you could just talk a bit more about the sort of structural elements of the practices and why those are powerful and why you're making those choices. At the heart of what we're doing is trying to build a culture or community of practice. And I realized that that might sound abstract. And this was really clarified for us in many ways through the work of Rasma Menachem, who wrote the mm. book on Grandmother's Hands. Yeah. And his question that he especially asked to some of us white-bodied folks, like, who are your people? Like, who is it that you're organizing and, and what's the, what's the culture? Is it an anti-racist culture, anti-oppressive culture? Like what's the culture that you're building? And the idea for us to focus on culture is a kind of pivot or a way of saying that <clears throat> systems of oppression 
live in and are reproduced in our bodies and our behaviors and how we show up in the world. Like we enact cultures or features of white supremacy culture, if we're not careful, probably many times throughout our day, right? How we orient our lives. So the idea of building a culture of practice is, is going further than just saying like, here's an antidote or a tool or one technique that will help mm. you up a little more, but to help us as a culture, get a sense of, get a, actually a clear analysis of what's going on here, mm. how we're caught and how we get free. And so when I think of the, the practices of courage, it is thinking about, transformative and theoretical praxis like what what are the analyses we need here what are the tools like what are the personal healing tools what are the interpersonal healing tools and then what are the systems or collectives tools that help us move towards liberation and our toolkit is you know this sense of we we draw from these contemplative and somatic traditions that are about helping us heal our nervous systems and reclaim our own relationality or sense of connection. And we're also drawing from anti-oppressive pedagogies and we're drawing from restorative healing models that might look like us gathering in circle or tools for healing our own trauma or healing our collective trauma. And we're drawing from sci-fi and other visionary traditions to help us say like what else is possible and also contemplative traditions like deconstructing our sense of what's real here and drawing from like movement theory and organizers and saying like okay how do you keep showing up so in this way when we say practice and tools like it's this very vast toolkit and I think what courage is offering is like none of this work is new I think what courage is trying to do is create this kind of framework Mm -hmm. that we can practice in and bring our own tools to that same playground or sandbox together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You used the word field earlier and sort of, I think you were using it in in the sense of like a group of people together, create a sort of field of connection and possibility and, and um, action and all of it. And what I hear you saying is that if you take that field of people, six people, 20 people, 100 people, 1,000 people, a million people, whatever the sort of field is, and invite them into spaces that are designed in different ways uh, and supported and held in different ways than the spaces they might know already, then all sorts of new possibilities and ways of being and acting become accessible that simply can't be seen yes. from the from the old framework yes yes and so you started to draw on all of these different traditions and r- contemplative traditions religious traditions anti-oppression traditions indigenous traditions and sort of like and it's not like you're just sort of throwing it's I, I sense that you're being really conscious and intentional about how are all of these actually quite similar and how are all of these different and complementary, and how are all of these fitting together in different ways so that as we move through space and time with each other, we're moving differently. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So what I love about that is, I mean, there's so much I love about that. And like, I sort of feel a deep wish and longing for there's sort of like a, what if, like, what if every, 
person who had some sort of conventional power or authority in, in the old system just said like, Oh, I'm over it. Like, let's, <laughs> you know, like, let's try and do just, let's do one thing differently. Let's all take 90 seconds every day to be in our bodies or whatever the, like the, like just so much could already begin to become possible with yeah. one little practice. And you're like now saying like, no, it's not just a practice. It's like the whole kit and caboodle of people check this out. We can do the whole thing differently. <laughs> I just think that's so cool. And like, there's almost a, um, I've been in spaces analogous to what you're describing. And there's almost a bit of a, like, there's a culture shock yeah. that comes both, both potentially entering, but also definitely exiting. Yes. Because by the time you've exited, you are almost certainly more rested, more open, more connected and then, and then you go back out into the predominant culture and in a way you're probably more resourced to handle that predominant culture, but it's still just like, ah, you know, like there's a loss there. There's sort of a, a mini loss every time someone has to step out. And I wonder if you could talk about how you, how you help people work with that. Yeah. And it's heartbreaking, right? Yeah. And I think any of us that have had a taste of any kind of freedom, right? Even in these moments of practice or a sense that something else is possible or that something else is here. Like this is not the only reality, you know, if we've tasted that in some way to come back to, to reconform, to get like pulled back in because of real life pressures in some way to kind of business as usual. I think there's like that heartbreak, mm. right. That we're mm. talking to. So heartbreaking. Yeah. And I think it's not uncommon for folks to come, especially in an intensive program and to then be sent back into their school system or their nonprofit or their job where it's like, we have a new way of seeing now. It's like, why is everyone else asleep? <laughs> and the, the terror of that and the dissonance of that. And so this is also part of why we're so committed to this idea of cultures of practice is like, yes, I I'm actually with you. Like, I think if more of us started practicing, we'd start to see more and more shifts, but, and if, yeah, there's policy work that's important and like legislative work that's important, but unless we're like actually starting to practice together, new ways of being like any of those incremental changes or new openings like portals of potential, like our entire mm. talks about, mm. right? COVID, like mm. there are these openings, but unless we're practicing new ways of being, those portals are closing right back down. Mm. 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 So we work with organizations at that level to support some of that cultural change, but for individuals or small teams that come through our work, part of our goal now in the last, especially year, few years in particular is to build local hubs. And this is a little different now with COVID, right? Like we're all virtual but how do we start to build those connections more locally in that sense of like, you're always actually part of this network of practice and we're just growing deeper roots and yeah, communities of this. Love That's it. in a way our theory of change. So. Yeah. Yeah. That, that there's, there's sort of not just the intensive, which is really that, that can be really important and critical, but there's then these anchors, these, portals to return to and step back through even if yeah. you're like kind of keeping you're like holding some portals open for people yeah. <laughs> and yeah. saying okay at least over here you can come back and connect and resource yourself and get nourished and then yeah. 
exactly. go back. Exactly. It's like sanctuary in a way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's another heartbreak too that comes up that I'm realizing, which is the heartbreak of standing on having been through one of those portals or maybe standing on the other side of them and seeing someone who's right there and just being like, come, Mm -hmm. come on, come through. It's going to be so good, Mm -hmm. you know, and they're just, they're not ready or they're afraid or, or, um, yeah. Yeah. Just for whatever reason, they, they are make the choice as they're, as they, they have their right to, to say like, that's not the portal I want to walk through right now, or I just can't see it yet. Or I don't know. I wonder how you work with that, that. This is so alive for yeah. me. Um, you know, some of it's burnout, right? Like mm. some of our inability to dream is just burnout. And so, mm. and burnout is real and burnout makes sense given the yeah. world that we live in. So to what extent can we resource folks while also trying to address causes of burnout, right? Um, but this question about vision, one thing that comes to mind is a fear that some folks have about visioning because of the fear that we might not realize that vision. Like I'd rather mm. not dream it so then I don't have to deal with the loss of it. Mm. Mm. And that feels like a very tender place that I like to work with folks. And it reminds me, and it it feels really alive for some of the climate work we're doing now. Um, Like within the the climate work or climate world, there's a spectrum of folks wrestling with what's happening and like what lies ahead. And I'd say like on one end of the spectrum are folks who think or believe like we really have the potential to turn this around. Mm. Like Mm. even this, and I'm not trying to repaint Um, COVID in any rosy way, but like the way in which so many things have come to a halt now have made many of us realize that actually other ways of being are possible and have been possible. Right. And um, folks deeply engaged in kind of technologies of the spirit are are pushing for that and saying like, there's a new way possible. Like this is a moment we can actually radically transform. And I think of like Joanna Macy's work and these visionaries who are calling us into something else. Yeah. And I think at the under, other end of the spectrum are folks who are saying like, and I think of people in deep adaptation work, like the writing is on the wall. Like the signs are clear. Um, there is not nearly enough mobilization, nor will there be enough mobilization at a global systems level to avert catastrophe. Like we're literally headed for the fifth max extinction. Mm. And mm. some projections are that within a hundred years, something like 80 to 90% of the human population will be wiped out. Yeah. So just like letting that even land, right. As like how, you know, for those of us who are like, Oh, it's going to, it's getting better. Like, how do we really wrestle with that? And I, for me, I think many people deeply steeped in climate work are actually holding the both end. Like, I think there are very few people on either extreme who are doing climate work who are saying like, you know, we need to wrestle with and embrace the possibility of not even just both futures, but multiple futures. And this is deeply spiritual, right? Like the future is not fixed and we don't know what will happen. And so how can we really hold open that radical sense of possibility or hope, like you might call it, right? Not like hope for the better, but like hope of like the way Rebecca Solnit writes about it, like an embrace of the unknown. Yes. And really recognizing that we don't know what will happen, but 
how we show up day to day actually matters and will go some way in affecting that future. And I think there's a real, it's not just a capacity for complexity or understanding emptiness or interdependence. I think there's a, a really deep caring instinct in that in being able to hold both possibilities. Mm. Mm. I mean, obviously for transformation, there's a sense of like, you know, a sense of reclaiming or finally living into human potential. But even folks who are like, the writing is on the wall. The feel I have from, from those folks is like, we still need to care for each other in and through this transition or the end or this mass extinction. Like that's a deeply love based view to have, to really courageously be able to say like, we don't know what's coming and we're Mm. still going to show up like that. Mm. That is fierce hope to me. Mm. 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 Wow. I'm really touched by that. Thank you, Brooke. Yeah. 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 Let me check the time. I'm aware that our time boundary is approaching swiftly. I think I just want to speak to that for a minute and then, and then bring us to a close if that's all right. Yeah, sure. There's something about your intuition or your insight that holding both and many more futures besides is really the trans like that's the that's the transformative move because both the best possible future and the worst are unknown and either way if we're anchor if we're not anchoring in that love and care for each other then then the best simply won't be possible because it needs love and care and the worst will be the worst it can be because we won't be loving and caring for each other in the midst of it. Mm-hmm. And actually someone else on the show I'm remembering now quoted Joanna Macy, uh, my guest Kim Lowe and I'll, and I'll paraphrase it, but the, the quote was something like, you know, the ship may be going down, mm. it, but if it is, I'd rather go down looking at each other, looking each other in the eye. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then just maybe, just maybe, even if the ship does go down, what we think is the ship actually does go down, we discover that there's some other, there's some other floor or ground or ocean that we simply can't see because we think the ship is the whole thing. We think the ship is reality. Yes. Yes. (sighs) Well, thank you, uh, Brooke, for coming on the show. Thank you. Andy. You're meeting for the first time today. And so I know there's always a bit of a like, who is this person and what are we going to talk about and what's going to happen <laughs> kind of question, especially for something that, that will be public in some way in the future. But this has been really, really beautiful. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you for your questions. I wonder if there's anything else you feel called to say or speak before we wrap up. I feel good. Okay. And if people want to find the work, um, Courage of Care, where should they go? Courageofcare.org. You can find all of our trainings and practices and resources there. Amazing. Well, I I look forward to sharing this with people. Uh, My sense is that we all need a lot of 
maybe everything of what you and your your beautiful team are doing in the world. And I'm just really appreciative of this space and of you in general. Thanks so much, Andy. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. Thanks for tuning in to The Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Serqua and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep the show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now more than ever.